This is Game Theory, our podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me and my brother, Chris. This is our second chess cast episode. In this episode, Chris and I will preview the upcoming World Championships. We'll review the historic relevance of the World Championships. We'll take a look at the historic relevance of the current World Champion and defending World Champion Magnus Carlsen. And we'll teach you a little bit about chess along the way as well. Don't forget to give this podcast five stars if you really appreciate it, or less than that if you really don't. You can follow us on Twitter. We've got an Instagram. We've got a Facebook as well. There's usually a poll. If you're listening on Spotify, you can participate in a poll or give us feedback from there as well. Okay, let's jump into our chess cast episode previewing the 2021 World Championships. And welcome to episode 17 of Game Theory, our podcast about competition strategy and decision making. I'm Nick and Chris. We're doing another chess podcast. It was our first episode. It's about chess. We're doing another chess episode here today. Yeah, you knew we had to get back to chess at some point soon. It was calling our name. It's going to happen. We've got to get to poker also. Some cool poker stuff happening around the internet today. But the reason we're doing this is because, and depending on when you're listening to this a few short days or a few days ago or perhaps years and years ago, the 2021 World Chess Championships are about to happen in November of 2021. And we're going to preview them. We're going to talk about them. And we're going to talk about how chess decides its champion because it's kind of a strange process for those of us whose foray into competition is just typical sports where it's like me and you and we're going to play or there's a series of playing or whatever. Chess is not so simple. We're going to get into that. We're also going to talk about uh, why the world champ is so effing good, and is he the best competitor at his thing ever in the history of humanity? Possibly. And we're going to talk about a chess concept because this is game theory. So we're going to learn a little something about chess, and I think there's a chess concept that happens in real life all the time when it would be better to just pass. Like, oh, this sucks. I'll pass. Your turn. Somebody else figure it out. No, thank you. Them. Yeah, no, thank you. But... Chris, let's start with the World Chess Championships because you played youth chess more than I did and you were far more into it. I've got into it recently. You go to tournaments, you play people, there's a winner, but the World Championships is different. So tell me, at what point did we find in human history the need to crown a champion and who, like, how did that happen? Well, first, I'm going to back up and address a term you used. You said I played youth chess. I'm just going to, I'm just going to put this out there. I need to confess something to the three people who are listening I recently played in a tournament when you came up here. We played in Reston, Virginia, and one of my opponents was under the age of 15, and I did not win that game. I also did not draw that game. So I'm convinced there's no such thing as youth chess. There are just people who are young who play chess, and there's no shame in losing to a 13-year-old who is just way better than me. But that said... Yeah, no, I, I mean, I'm, I, it's cool to see. I mean, obviously you want to grow the game. But one of the reasons that people play games is to figure out who's the best. I mean, it's the fun part. It's the competitive part of chess uh, or any game, really. Uh, and chess has a pretty cool world championship history. I mean, it's like a lot of sports where there's a long history that branches off and it gets complicated and there are differing accounts Uh depending on how far back you go and, and who you want to ask. Uh, but the Chess World Championship is a pretty well-established thing now. Uh, it's run by the International Chess Federation. Uh, it's a French name that I'm not going to stoop to the level of saying. Uh, it's it's FIDE. 
Fee Day, yeah. Uh, it's like fee, it, think of like FIFA for soccer, uh, but it's uh, it's the International Chess Federation. Uh, yeah, we'll and we'll discuss some of that. There's there's some interesting history there uh, where Fee Day's corruption led to some different some changes in the way the world champion is determined. But for now, uh, the Chess World Championship is an a formal event that's recognized by this International Chess Federation. And it formally crowns the best player in the world. And the way the basic process works is it relies on the existing world champion. And 100% of the time, they automatically get a bid in to defend their own title. It's the coolest concept. I mean, you, you and I say this every year when we get back to like the start of sports season. You should have to beat the previous champion in order to become the new champion. I agree. Yeah, I mean, it should. Like, right, they say that with college football or whatever, like, they need to be unseated. You see the same thing with international soccer. Like, the previous champion automatically qualifies for the tournament the next time, even if the whole building was set on fire. Like, they, that's their thing. Yep, and now, granted, it's it's easier with chess because you only got one person. Right. It's not a team sport, so it's just, it's just one person. They get the automatic bid. But you do have to see if you can unseat the champion, or yeah. I guess the champion can retire... Uh, in some cases, you know, depending on what they want to do. But, you know, most of the time, if things proceed normally, the way that the world championship goes is a bunch of really elite players compete for the chance to beat the next chess champion instead of everybody getting thrown into a blending pot as if the previous championship never happened. Yeah, so like beer pong, we're like, I got next game. We're like, you have to play a bunch of people to get next game. Exactly. And I think that's a really cool way to maintain continuity, uh, to establish a once and for all, like, okay, who's really the champ? And it kind of solves that question that we got to with our college football episode of are we determining who's the best player or who does the best in this tournament? Well, mm-hmm. you, know, you kind of get the best of both worlds there because in order to become the world champion, you know the world champion had to go through the same process as everybody else is, is trying to get into to beat them. So I, I think it's a pretty good system. It's a good way of doing it. The drawback is that it only happens every few years. Yeah. You can't have an annual world chess champion because chess games take a long time. It's exhausting. There are a lot of great players. And it's just really hard to try to cram that all into one year. And just, it doesn't make any sense. So every few years, FIDE hosts the World Chess Championship. The tournaments that lead into that are qualifying tournaments. Uh, and the one that immediately precedes the World Championship match between the two players uh, is called the Candidates Tournament. Yep. And to become a candidate, you have to qualify. Obviously, you have to be at a certain rating level. Uh, You have to win a certain number of games at a certain time. Uh, And that's a really limited pool, I think, of like eight players. And they basically just play a match-style tournament to see who is the winner of the candidates. And that takes place over a period of several months leading up to the World Championship. And then there's a break where the two players can study each other and and get really spun up and do their own home cooking with their own variations and whatever they want to do and, and play the game. And it's really, it's really cool and really competitive. Yeah, so I have the Candidates Cup pulled up on YouTube right here, uh, the 2021 Candidates Cup. And the Challenger, of course, is highlighted in green if you're watching on new YouTube. So let's see the country of origin representation here. We have three Russians. They really cared about this in the Soviet Union. They really cared about chess a lot, which we will talk about. And we'll about talk about that. Yeah. Two Chinese people. One Dutchman. Am I missing anybody? Oh, a Frenchman and an American. 
And the American was the heavy favorite to win this tournament as he was the challenger back in 2018. There was supposed to be a cup in 2020. I don't know why we didn't have it. I can't possibly think of why we didn't have it. But now it's in 2021. Yeah, was, there something, was there something going on? I, that's, that is indeed the rumor. The American tied mm-hmm. for third place this time. And apparently, we could talk about this too. The American is the second greatest living competitive player. There are two guys who are old who used to be really good. And then there's the current champion. And then the American, Fabiano Caruana, is probably the second best player in the world. He did not win the Candidates Cup. It's this guy, the Candidates Cup. Is it Candidates Cup or Candidates Tournament? I, I, I've always said candidates tournament. I don't know if there actually is a cup like the apple. Is is there like an apple cup? I don't or like know. a Commonwealth cup. I don't. I don't know. But there should a candidates cup is an alliteration. What are we doing? Well, is it an alliteration in every language though? Because these French people got control uh, of. That's true. Fide. They do control literally every aspect of chess, which is part of the problem. His name is. If it wasn't that. It would be the I, ICF or whatever it was in English or. That's I don't know right. what the Russian equivalent would we be. We would. What did we come up with? The Super Bowl, the World Series. We would do something like that, right? The, Pretty baller, ga- the galactic champion. So the the winner of the the candidates tournament is this guy. His first name is Ian. Uh, his last name is Nepomniachi. Think that's right? Nepomniachi. Nepomniachi. I'm, that, that looks about right. Nepomniachi. Everybody just calls him Nepo, though, to yeah. get around that. Which just does have a lot of that. There is a lot of first name, nickname kind of stuff. Like if I say Anish, you know who I'm talking about. If I say Fabiano, you know who I'm talking about. And if I say Magnus, everybody knows who I'm talking about. So hey everybody, you qualify for this tournament. It's a round robin, right? They all play each other. Twice? Once. I think it's once. It's once. It's literally a round robin. And the way that chess play. works, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong. And here's the scoreboard. It's up on the, uh, the screen right now. The way that it works is if you draw, you get a half point. If you win, you get a point. If you lose, you get zero points. And so theoretically, it's it's unlikely that there will be a tie from these eight people, even though there are multiple ties throughout the standings. And so you want to essentially avoid losing in all of your matches. If you just drew every one of them, you'd be pretty close to being the challenger. But you need to have a checkmate or two in there to get ahead. And in the last game of the... The second to last game of the Canada Shrub, Nepo... Uh, or third to last game, he did get a checkmate, he pulled ahead, and then he got a couple draws, and he, he finished he finished pretty strong. So he's going to be the challenger, and it's kind of a, it was kind of a surprise to a lot of people. Yeah, uh, the th- one of the things about chess at those really elite levels is that ties are really common. It's yeah. not like you know pro football or whatever, where the only time you see a lie a, a tie is when the lions just suck. And it's raining and it's really crappy and, you know, it happens once or twice a year. Uh, ties happen all the time. Yeah. Like in the most common the most common result of these games at, at that super elite level is a tie. And so the players, like in the world championship match, the players will play like 12 or 14 or 10. It's It's been different throughout history, but they'll play you know, some low double digit number of matches against each other. And a lot of times what will happen is the scores will be pretty much draws all the way across. In fact, that was the result of the match in 2018 between Fabiano and Magnus. And in situations like that, it used to be uh, for a period of time that the winner of that result, they don't play a tiebreaker. The winner yeah. it just is the champion because he hasn't been unseated. You have to actually beat the champion in order to become the champion. Right. Now they've instituted tiebreaks and the tie breaks basically just use a different time control. Of course, these are classic time, classical time control games, really long, like hours, hours long. It's got to be exhausting. But yeah. for the tiebreakers, they do a lot more 
uh, shorter games like rapid games, and those those still take a long time. They're not you know firing off blitz games out there to determine who's the best chess player in the world. They but. did do rapid, right? Which is so the way that we're talking about rapid yeah. blitz and classical. Classical, I believe, is each player gets three hours to play the game, and your clock counts. Well, it, it depends. I, mean, I don't know what the I actually don't know what the exact time control is anymore that they use because you you can change a lot of things about that. You know, for the, for those of you who don't know about how chess clocks work, like in the movie, like. The, the clock's one of the coolest things about chess. Like, you make a move and, like, hit the little button, and it's like, oh, my God, so much tension. Uh, one of the <laughs> cool things about that is that you can build in different functions in the clock. So, for example, you can set it to where uh, there is a certain period of time for a few seconds or up to a minute uh, where the clock will delay ticking when it's your move. So your opponent presses the clock to start your move, uh, and the clock doesn't start ticking. No time ticks off your clock. There's just a delayed timer, and after that timer expires then your clock starts ticking. So in theory, if you kept moving within the time span of that delay, you'd never run out of time. Uh, there is also a function where you can add time to the clock after every move. Yep. So that, and that's up to like the discretion of the tournament or, you know, whatever the regulations are. So like after you make a move, then 15 seconds, 30 seconds, a minute are added back onto your clock. So in theory, you could also never run out of time there. Uh, a lot of tournaments these days, and I, and I guess it's been this way for a long time, but a lot of tournaments will have it where you have a set period of time to play a certain number of moves. So you'll have two hours to play the first 40 moves of the game. And then once you and your opponent cross the 40-move threshold, it's not over. You still keep playing. Uh, just the time control switches. Maybe it cuts down to like, okay, at that point, no matter how much time is left on the clocks, the players each have 30 minutes. Or, you know, they cut it down really low or they add in a delay. They add in a, an increment is when you add time onto the clock. Yep. The point is there's all kinds of stuff you can do. And almost all of them are designed to make the games take longer and build in a, an advantage for the players uh, in terms of, like, not being under time pressure. Because uh, they, they want, you know, they want the chess to be the star of the show. But, right. you know, at a certain point, you have to draw limits on this thing. Yeah, so let's talk about, let's go back in time and talk about why this is a necessary thing. So people are starting to get good at it, and as travel becomes easier, we're going to talk to each other or whatever. It used to be like, essentially, not that it wasn't taken seriously, but it's, it kind of used to be a parlor game where people played and it was fun and blah, blah, blah. But then, I think, I don't take credit, but I'm pretty sure this guy, that American guy was the first one to make it like a thing that people wanted to win, and he was like the first famous. Am I wrong that he was sort of the first international superstar chess player he was referenced in the queen's gambit because as she was based off of this character kind of because she had some sexual promiscuity she was an orphan she didn't have parental supervision and she had an opioid addiction this player was also a very famous drunkard and and philanderer but you know he was a chess player and a super genius um, and as a result of that they're like well we have to have a system for deciding who the best player is at this and that of course is paul morphy uh close yes so 100% of what you said about Paul Morphy uh, is right, except that he was, uh, like, the first guy. Uh, really, the first, I would say, the most famous player early on goes all the way back to the 16th century. Mm. You know, in, the, in, the, in the 1500s, there was this, uh, this Spanish bishop uh, called Ruy Lopez mm. who wrote this, like, treatise on how to play the game. He studied it. And so, it, at the time, it was just like a, you know, a, a parlor game for elites or whatever, you know, all these smart people would just play chess in their rarefied, I don't know, castles or whatever. I, I don't know <laughs> what life was like in the 16th century. But Ruy Lopez quad, uh, started to codify the game and, you know, quantify it. 
And, you know, there, there were a bunch of different rules uh, centuries ago in chess. Now the pieces moved differently and there were different rules and stuff like that. But Roy Lopez wrote at a time when the rules recently had been changed to make things more dynamic, to make it so that pieces could go farther, to make it so that the board could open up a little bit more and move the game along faster because it used to be that there are restrictions that made it just take forever, too, like too like too long. Right. And I'm saying this about modern chess, the way we understand it now. I mean, <laughs> yeah, those games like must Monopoly, have been just a like, snooze. Like how to speed up fucking Monopoly. Oh, good God. Or like Risk. My yeah. God. Yeah. So Ray Lopez wrote this study, and he, he studied what would become one of the most famous openings in the world, and it's named after him. Uh, it's called the Roy Lopez. And it was kind of groundbreaking. I mean, it was really the, some of the first scholarship on chess to treat this game as a subject for serious study. And there were a lot of other brilliant players at the time. Well, there were a lot of Italian and Spanish players uh, in the 16th and 17th centuries who were known pretty well. But, you know, largely it was a cosmopolitan game. It was a game for Europeans uh, who were well-to-do or high up in clergy, in positions of power. Uh, and so it was kind of limited to, to those circles. So chess was associated with people who... You know, are better than you know the average peasant or whatever. Uh, for whatever reason, that kind of changed in the 18th and 19th centuries, where French players started to become really good. Do you know any French famous French players that you might be familiar with? Yeah, my favorite I think was French. Um, my favorite opening that I play is the Philidor, and he is that's right, a Frenchman. He was a genius at many, many, many things, including chess. Yeah, he was awesome. Yeah, he yeah. Uh, he's kind of like Francois Andre Danikan Philidor. Philidor. Yeah, he, unfortunately, the Philidor is a very boring opening. Uh disagree. And I would bet I, I I plan on checking out the wagering markets on the World Chess Championships, and I would bet we see the Philidor at least once. That'd be oh, what do you think so? A hundred percent. I bet we see a bunch of Spanish and a bunch of silly, but we we can get it. Yeah. yeah, no. So so Philidor was one of these one of these guys who kind of represented the French intellectual tradition of chess in in the eighteenth and nineteenth centuries. Right. Uh, and then in the late 1800s, or I guess mid-1800s, people started to kind of wonder, like, who's the best at this? Uh, that was a time when, you know, travel was becoming more common and, you know, the, the kind of power landscape in Europe you know, with the, among the different dynasties and countries and, and whatever was starting to take shape a little bit more clearly. Uh, and so people were able to play chess and travel around and uh, and go a little bit outside of, like, their monastery walls to play the game. Right. Uh, but then in the mid to late 1800s, along come our famous characters, uh, including your man, Paul Morphy. Mm -hmm. So the first really, I guess, recognized world champion where everybody's like, okay, yeah, this guy's just the champ. Uh, it wasn't Paul Morphy. Uh, it was actually a guy named Wilhelm Steinitz. Uh, Steinitz. And, yes. Yeah. So you Steinitz is a really interesting guy. Wilhelm. Uh, uh, he was kind of recognized in 1886 yeah, after yeah, yeah. a match he played with huh. Johannes Zuckertort. Uh, he Love these names. One handily. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's so names. rad. Yeah. Uh, and uh, from that point on, it kind of became a matter of like the challenger or the champion sets the terms for the challenger. Which like, okay, sense. I'm the champ. You got to play right. where I want, when I want, what time controls I want, how many games I want. And uh, it was kind of a free-for-all at that point. But, yeah, Wilhelm Steinitz was really the first guy to be recognized as the world champion. Uh, there were kind of some unofficial world champions before that, though, including your man, Paul Morphy. Yep. Uh, 
Interesting thing about Paul Morphy. He was a drug addict. He was. Oh, well, yes. yes. Yeah. Yes. So he, he, well, he famously got addicted to tranquilizers while he was in a young girl's orphanage yep. for a period of time following the suicide of his mother. Uh, yes. Murder, suicide, or suicide. I think it was a murder, suicide. We were talking about the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. 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 I, it, it was called Morphe's Gambit then, but yes. <laughs> but so, uh, I, I heard this one time. I don't know if this is true or not. Yeah. I, and I don't know if there's a way to verify this, but allegedly, Paul Morphy was like the first American to be considered the greatest in the world at anything. Yeah, he was the first one other than like Franklin to be invited to the Europe because he was spectacular. Did you say to the Europe? To the Europe. Yeah, to Europe. I, I think I sp- I think I think I think I like glottal stopped my tongue right there. Like <laughs> you glottal stopped your tongue. Yeah. So he was <laughs> he was the first to be invited to the Europe's, mm. other than like a, for diplomatic reasons. For like, hey, there's an American that's cool. He should come over here. There wasn't. We hadn't like broken ground in music. I don't think at that time there was no real art trade happening, and we were like a young country with a bunch of irrelevant dudes, except for Paul Morphy, who I think is from New Orleans. Yeah. Yeah, Paul yeah Murphy which lives is in not New what you think. You're like, oh, this is a Manhattan egotistical. Nah, man, that guy's from where they drink alcohol for sure. Yeah, well, and like, and like this guy, like the stats on this guy's life are crazy too. So first of all, you gotta understand, like the chess style when Paul Morphy played is called the romantic style of chess, and what that means is it's like dashing and exciting and daring, and players play all kinds of sacrifices, and the openings were all gambits, and it was considered like unsportsmanlike to not play into a gambit and all this stuff and so you get games that have these crazy combinations where you're able to calculate out like seven eight nine ten exchanges in a row and you know morphe would just like chuck pieces down the board and just throw them at his opponent and he had these spectacular checkmates you know there's games where he would walk the opponent's king like 10 or 12 squares before checkmating just crazy crazy fun games yeah and uh then after he became the world champion, the unofficial world champion, uh, in 1859, he retired. He just, he's like, okay, well, I, I'm the best in the world at that. Yeah. Time to call it a day. I think he got uh, bored. He was, like, I, I think that he, yeah. it was fun to play. And he strikes me as kind of like a, a hipster douchebag in a lot of ways. That like Bob Dylan won a Nobel Prize and didn't show up. Like that was kind of what Paul Morphy was like. Oh, this is kind of stupid now. I kind of hate it. Yeah, and, and he yeah. didn't he didn't have FIDE or anything. He didn't really have a, a structure. It was kind of the Wild West, you know, the way he played the game. Right. Yeah, but, no, and he yeah, well and like there are and some of the things that he did are still studied like essentially like your for if you took chess one oh one, he has a game called the opera game that it's like would be in the first chapter of your textbook of like when you're learning basic like chapter one is the rules, chapter two is learn this game and like two or three other games. Yeah. I mean I I'm in the camp of thinking that chess is an art and that game in particular, but all of Morphe's plays is just the finest of fine art. It's, yeah. it's so fun, so cool. People, he he essentially like had, his chest was so beautiful and the way that he worked off things like the opera game is talking about, he's like having conversations with Roy Lopez throughout history. Cause it's like only those two people are on the same wavelength where he's like, I am, we should have played against each other. That would have been fun. These people are losers. You should be playing me. And that's like, that's, and that's how chess has kind of worked throughout history. We're like, they, there are a bunch of good players at one time, and you're the world champ or whatever, but what people really yearn for is like Bobby Fischer versus Magnus Carlsen and that kind of stuff. So let's get into the history of the world championship. So there's been a handful of world champions. 
um, that are undisputed. And now we're sort of starting to figure out an actual system because there's getting to be more money involved and people are getting famous. Like you have to have a system and people have to buy into it. So there are three different kinds of chess, essentially. There's classical, which is where you sit across from the board and you take all goddamn day and that's classical chess. Then there's rapid, which has essentially, I believe, 10 minutes. You have 10 minutes to play your turn. It's 10 apiece, right? And then I, think it's 15, I think 15 is world rapid. 15 with no increment is is considered rapid. I think that's like a U.S. Right. chess. And, and what you mean with no increment is like when it's my turn to move, I get 15 minutes and then I move and it stops. And then you get 15 minutes and then you move and you hit the clock and it stops. Yeah, so that's what the clock time. does. Right. And then blitz, I think... International Blitz is either 3-0 or 3-2, right? Which in my 3-2, I mean, I get three minutes, and every time I hit the button, I get two seconds back. I think I actually don't know what the what the rule is. I mean, it makes sense know, to have either. two seconds, but I don't know. That so, increment makes all the difference in the world. It, it really well, and because if you get your shit together at the end, you can build up more seconds, and like it never ends, theoretically. That's happened to me plenty of times where I should have beaten someone. Anyway, mm. ah. <laughs> so now what they've started doing, I believe in 2016, or I don't know when they instituted this, Chris, this will be your your thing. I think rapid, the short games became tiebreakers at the end pretty recently because they don't like, don't just want to do infinite amount of ties. And in 2016, Magnus Carlson, who had became champion in 2014 was playing a bunch of really boring games with his challenger, Sergei Karyakin's like, well, they need rapid because we can't tell who the, who the effing champion is. So they have to play rapid games now. And that opened, that opened it up. And I'm, I'm on board with that. If, if you can't decide who it is in classical, then that means that neither of you two losers were being aggressive and no one wants it. So let's figure it out. And I'm kind of in the opposite camp on that one because... You think the challenger we, we, should have to checkmate him? Right, yeah. The challenger should have to win. The challenger should have to beat the champ in order to unseat them as the champ. And sure. You know, it, one, one of the things about chess is, like, it, if, you're, if you're playing as black and white plays, like, optimally, you know, there's, there's no perfect game of chess, but, like, if you play, like, really, really well, really, as black, the best you can realistically hope for is a draw. It's rare at the elite levels for black to win and like some crazy things have to happen, but you have to be aggressive to do it. So more often black plays to draw. Well, I mean, that's, it, it should be the challenger's responsibility when to they're take white the to take advantage road. of it. Sure. Well, right. yeah, I mean, certainly is white, but you know, to be, be more adventurous is black too. And you know, it's, it's easier to, to do that in rapid games because your opponent has less time to think through. So if, you, if you've prepared some kind of crazy line, then you can kind of like spring traps and, and it's a little bit more exciting. But you know, at the end of the day, I think it's incumbent on the challenger to try to defeat the incumbent. Mm. And I think rapid games are kind of playing into uh, championship syndrome where like sure. we have to know who's the best right now. Like, well, we do know who the best is right now. And it's funny that you say that, Chris. What a great transition that is because rapid blitz and classical chess are all three different kinds of sports, essentially, because it's different kind of skills. And anybody who watched a Queen's Gambit is like, I've never played speed chess before. Like, yeah, it's a different way of thinking. It really is. Yep. However, the current champion of classical chess was the first person ever to be the champion at all three at the same time. And his name is Magnus Carlsen, and he is the greatest chess player of all time, probably. And that's yeah, a tough well, conversation. Because we talk about goats, it's like Jordan versus whoever or whatever. Right now, in their primes, he's better. But does he have the longevity of the person he's trying to usurp, which is this guy named Gary Kasparov? He's the current world champion, Magnus Carlsen. He became world champion by defeating Vishwathan Anand in 2014 in India. He defended his championship in 2016 against Sergei Karyakin. He defended it in 2018 against the American Fabiano Caruana, and he is my man crush and my one true king. 
Yes, he's 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 all of our one true king. Nick, I want to go back through and talk about the world champions. Okay, it like I'm 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 a little I'm a little still a little fixated on the history there. I think it's really interesting. So we'll go back. Let's go back in history from 2018. So Magnus, Magnus, Magnus. And remember, it's is every other year essentially. So 2018, 16, 14 was Magnus, and before that it was Vrishwathana Nan. So start there. So Vishwanathan Anand, uh, Vishy for short, that's mm-hmm. the, that's the one name moniker that everybody knows him by, right. uh, really spectacular player. There's some really interesting history with him though, because depending on who you ask, he's actually been world champion twice. Yes. Yeah. So he was the FIDE world champion in 2000 and he was there for one cycle through 2002 uh, and then he was world champion again in 2007 after he beat Vladimir Kramnik. Uh, and I say that depends on who you ask because from 1993 to 2006, there was a really, really interesting and really dramatic rift in the chess community about what should be or which organization should be the final arbiter of like who is the world champion. Uh there was alleged corruption after an interesting match between Nigel Short and Gary Kasparov. Uh, they both alleged that FIDE was really corrupt and they weren't cooperative and they weren't helpful in setting up the tournament and they weren't you know, letting the players dictate things on their own terms. And so after that match in 1993, uh, some, of, some other players, mostly Russians, uh, split away from FIDE mm-hmm. and they formed the Professional Chess Association and the PCA, as you will, or if you will, crowned its own world champions during that period of time. Uh, from 93 to 2000, it was Kasparov. And from 2000 to 2006, it was Vladimir Kramnik. So, technically, Vichy Anand and Vladimir Kramnik were both world champions in 2000. Yes. Uh, and okay. so I think it's it's kind of a cool thing that they got to, when the, the streams re-merged back in 2006, the PCA... Uh, kind of went away, and then FIDE resumed like status as undisputed you know, determiner. Well, the champions. interesting thing about that, Chris, is that guess what? Vissi and Kramnik both still good, and they had both had plenty of shots at it after that. Yeah, they're 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 both so good. It yeah. just is really hard to stay good, stay great at for a long time. I mean, it is a young person's game. Like, people don't realize like it's it's exhausting. It's tiring to play chess. You got to be in good shape. There are reports have, from like, Stanford faculties. researchers that you can burn up to five thousand calories in one of these marathon classical matches. Like there was a there was a fourteen year old Russian who burned five thousand calories sitting at a board. Yeah, so I don't understand why people get on my ass for not exercising when I sit around <laughs> and play chess all day. That's true. So let's go back to the goat of goats. So. Magnus, who's the who's the world champion right now, is the best player of all time. But the goat, and what I consider to be goat, is do you have the longevity to do that? And that's a um, a Russian, a former Soviet Union. Uh, his name is Gary Kasparov. Now he's a political commentator and noted liberal who hates Vladimir Putin. Uh, love you, love you, Gary. But he was he's the goat, and he's the guy that really they called him the Beast of Baku, and he he took the title from his countrymen. Uh, Anatoly Karpov, Chris, and Gary Kasparov. And this was, I think he showed up on the scene, I want to say in the 60s he kind of sh- showed up, and then he became he became who he became in the 80s. Well, he literally showed up on the scene in the he 60s. Was like, because he was born in 61, right? He was born in 63. 63. Yeah, so he literally physically showed up. And if you think I say scene. show up, like nine-year-old Gary Kasparov is one of the top 20 or 30 players of all time. 
you know, he was he was awesome. I, it's really interesting because like there's there's a lot of debates you can have about what constitutes the greatest chess player of all time. Right. It, it's hard to do because there are so many different periods of chess. Like you think of chess, you think like okay, it's kind of like a monolith. Well, but not really though, because we did, we talked earlier about. Paul Morphy's romantic style, like all the players of his day were playing in the romantic style. And that was at a period of time where they didn't have like the level of scholarship and, you know, they didn't have all the access to, you know, you, they couldn't just walk into a Barnes and Noble and browse the chess section and see what's there. It, it, it was really rare and really hard to find that kind of stuff. And you could just, cause it hadn't been done. So the style of chess that they played was much more cavalier. It was much more free flowing. Uh, it was much more exciting and combination based. Uh, and then, my boy Wilhelm Steinitz came along uh, in 1886. He became kind of the undisputed world champ, the first really recognized world champion. And the thing about Steinitz is he literally changed the game because being the Austro-Hungarian mastermind tinkerer engineer brain that he was, he codified the game of chess in probably the most rigorous way really of anybody. He revolutionized the field of chess study more than anyone since Roy Lopez and the way he did it was by establishing principles and finding rules and making maxims and all this stuff. And he formulated what was what would come to be referred to as positional play. And so he calcul- he, he tabulated these elements like pawn chains and backward pawns and weak squares and tempo and all kinds of stuff that in Morphe's day, they didn't really care about as much because to play cool, fun, exciting combinations, you didn't have to pay as much attention to that kind of thing. Well, Steinitz's contribution to the game was really cool and exciting, but it made chess more of a science, and people at the time kind of actually thought he ruined the game. Yeah. They thought it was like, they're like, okay, this is it. Like, chess is chess is done. It's solved. Like, Steinitz has found, found the way. Uh, of course, we know that not to be true, but I think you could make an argument that he's the greatest of all time because he completely killed a style of chess at the elite level. Like yeah. pe- players don't play sure. the way Morphe does. Like they have to know his games, but they don't play like that anymore. And that's because of that one guy. Yeah. He figured, he figured out, he kind of solved the chess at the beginning, but then it, we create something that we've talked about in this game. And this is where it becomes game theoretical um, more so now than ever, perhaps, but definitely back then. And you see this in the Queen's Gambit when she's like going to play the Russians and they know her and she knows them or whatever. Once that happens, you try to find a way around that kind of that calculation. And eventually, if your opponent is studying as much as you are, I know you know, and you know I know, and I know that you know I know. And eventually, there becomes a game of a little bit of bluffing and studying and, and what you're going to try to do to get them to freak out or study the wrong thing. It's like in uh, dodgeball. He's like, I know you, you know mm-hmm. you, you know. I know you know that I know you. Um. So, Chris. So, if we're fast forwarding, there are a lot of great players in the 1900s and the 1920s, 30s, and countries that don't exist anymore. Um, Capablanca is a player that everybody is really obsessed with. Uh, I, I'm, a, I'm of the opinion that Capablanca had the most genius, just natural talent for chess of anybody. Because, like, when he was like three, four years old, he understood like how the game works. Yeah. Like just a just a complete freak of nature. Like all, all these guys have to be like you can't be a great player unless you're sure. like an elite player when you're young. Uh, so they're all really great when they're young. They would all just beat the hell out of both of us. Right. But Capablanca was on a different level there, and I think naturally gifted. Sure, Bobby Fischer is yeah. pretty naturally gifted. Yeah. Um, then the Cold War happens in 1948, and the Soviet Union realizes that this is an opportunity to show Americans how much smarter we are than them. And in chess, they did that to us and everybody else. So I'm just going to go down the list here. From 48 
to 69, it was Soviet Union versus Soviet Union, Soviet Union versus Soviet Union in the championship over and over and over and over and over. And they played really crushing, calculating, really good styles of chess until our boy Bobby Fischer takes the title from Boris Spassky in 1972 in Reykjavik. And that is one of the two non-Soviet people to appear in the championship until Gary Kasparov, who was a Russian. So the, the, the first time a non-Soviet, non-Russian appeared in the World Chess Championship other than Bobby Fischer and Viktor Korshnoi. So two guys. Other than that, it didn't happen until Nigel Short in Great Britain in 93. So they dominated yeah, for 50 years. It's, it's, it's insane. Like they, they, they thought that sport was going to be the way that they were going to show the Americans right. how great the communist way of life was or whatever. So they had seven undisputed world champs in a row. Botvinnik, Smyslov, Botvinnik again, Tal, Botvinnik again, Tigran Petrosian, Boris Spassky. Uh, and then you said our boy Fisher comes along. Uh, really phenomenal story how he basically took down the entire Soviet chess machine i mean they had institutions backing them chess schools you know little kids going into like kindergarten or whatever the equivalent was in the soviet union they're taught chess from day one it's studied hard it's they train hard it, it's a sport like any other and they wanted to use it to prove soviet dominance so for so for fisher to take down spassky like that was you know that was iconic that was like on the level of like miracle here's the big problem bobby fisher was a piece of shit He's a terrible person. He's a terrible. He's not. He was not a good guy. So he died in 2010. And far be it for me to like spit on somebody's grave, but man, he was an absolute. He, I turd. think he was exiled from the United States. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he 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 was He's a terrorist. He's an actual terrorist. Well, he was like he had kind right? of like paranoid delusions and stuff too. Like he was convinced that the Soviets were like spying on him in the late seven in the mid late seventies. And I mean, they kind of were because he was playing them at chess and. But he was also like a prima donna, too. I mean, he made crazy, stupid demands in his match with Spassky. Like, oh, the lights are a little bit too bright. And so they would, like, try to figure out a way to, like, rewire the lights in the auditorium where they're playing. And then he's like, the lights are too dim. I can't see the board. Right. And then he's like, I want press in here. No, I don't want press in here. I want to play at this time. Oh, I actually don't want to play at that time. Just such a whiny brat about it. And it got on everybody's nerves. And, like, it had people, like, rooting for Spassky and stuff. And then the crazy stuff really started to happen. Like he became world champ, and and he was just he was just the best. You know, there there was there was nobody that could compare to Fisher. But then he got bored with the game of chess, and he started doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So he grew up Jewish, uh, and later in life developed the most absurd, brazen anti-Semitism that I've ever seen in a public figure. Like yeah. he wouldn't eat in restaurants if it, they employed any Jews, and he lived in New York. It, it, yeah. it, it just just absolutely crazy and you know that carried over into the end of his life like he said america deserved 9-11 for the way we behaved and whatever else and like yeah i think in his last few years he lived in he lived in iceland because he wasn't welcome in the u.s he invented a new style of chess which is chess 960 fisher random where they just like rearrange the pieces on the back it was like rank. a study tactic yeah well and he thought it was going to solve the problem of like he's like well everybody just memorizes book moves out to like 40 moves. So what's the point of even playing? But if you rearrange the pieces on the back rank, like you can't just like study, you can't get all booked up and call yourself a good chess player. But then he became Roman Catholic, thought that was like the only way to save the world from the evil Jews. Uh, and then he died miserably and alone. Yep. So and they, they exhumed his body there. to see if he had some sort of brain problems. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah. he had some personality problems. I'll tell you that yeah, shit. Yeah, he, he was a sociopath. But Bobby Fischer showed up. He won in 1972. 
He uh, lost the title in 1975, and then this Swiss guy who was also of the Soviet Union, Viktor Kirshnoy, so he's technically a Soviet as well, he was in there for a couple times, but other than that, the Soviets dominated, they dominated, they dominated. Gary Kasparov becomes a Russian and not a Soviet Union person, and then it diversifies. The rest of the world catches up, and we've got Romanians and Indians, and I'm trying to memorize the flags. That well, and, is this, and this is in a period of time, remember, when the Bulgarian. after after Kasparov you know, became Russian in 91, he was world champ until 93 and then th- then there was that split between yep. the PCA yep. and FIDE. So yep. FIDE had a bunch of different world champions. Uh also Anatoly Karpov and uh Alexander uh Kalifman who were both Russians. So right. at one time they were like two different sets of Russians who were world champions. <laughs> yeah, which is hilarious. But, yeah, but then but then yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, in 2000 uh, and it, the first Indian wins the world championship and then the first Ukrainian wins and the first Uzbek wins and the first Bulgarian wins after that. Now Magnus is the we have first an Israeli. Canadian. We have a, uh, a Israeli has one, uh, has, has participated twice and has, has, well, no, not one, but has, has qualified twice. Yeah. So, uh, a lot more, the, the, the game has gone more global and, you know, of course the, the, you know, the Russian Federation has the, the rich, impossibly rich tradition of chess from the Soviet Union, but it's not the same that it was. I mean, they don't have the Red Army School teaching kids how to play chess like they're in the military. Uh, so the game has become more global, and it's really actually kind of become democratized. Yeah. Uh, like I said, we can walk into Barnes & Noble or whatever, but now we have computers. Like in 1993, Gary Kasparov played Deep Blue, that machine from IBM, uh, he accused it of them of tampering, which I think they were, because he said they it completely changed styles in like the middle of a game, yeah. and uh, only so somebody that's just, like, that playing good the tell. moves. <laughs> yeah, so, so, but I mean, since then we've developed computers that can beat all but like the world's greatest players, and uh, some people think like, oh, chess has been solved there, but really it's like a tool to make everybody better. So just yeah. the level of chess resources that are out there, uh, it's it's amazing. And it's great for the game, and it uh, allows for more diversity at elite levels as well. Yeah, so let's uh, let's talk about what's going on right now. So we talked about Magnus, the goat of goats. He is the one, two, three, four-time defending champion. He has four world championships. He is encroaching on perhaps the greatest player of all time. He's got about 10 years, and he'll say that. He's been quoted as saying, uh, Kasparov was on the top of the world for X amount of years. I'm not even halfway there, which game respect game. That's what young people are supposed to say. I think people would like LeBron James more if he talked like that about Michael Jordan. Alas, we are here. So we were talking about the rapid thing, Chris, the rapid style of chess being a tiebreaker. In 2016, it was a tiebreaker against Sergei Karyakin. And that, of course, led to the greatest checkmate of all time, I will say. And I haven't studied chess as much you, as you, you have. You think the greatest checkmate of all time? Yes, I think it was the greatest checkmate of all time. There's some and sick checkmates out I, there, man. Dude, it is a queen sacrifice that was literally like, huh. And I just watched a video that I wanted to bone up, and this Russian dude was like, there were people who were audibly gasping. I don't know if I've seen that one, actually. Yeah, it was the it was match 16 in 2016 against Sergei Karyakin. And Karyakin, I guess, I haven't seen... I looked for the video of it happening, and I guess yes. what this Russian dude was like, Karyakin shook his head and resigned in three seconds. It was like, oh, damn. So it, was, it was not an actual checkmate. It was a made-in-one. And a resignation. Amazing. So a made in one for anybody that doesn't know means I put you in a situation where like checkmate is now inevitable. It's essentially a two move checkmate. We're like, doesn't matter what you do. Next move checkmate, son. And it was, it was a queen sacrifice. It was preposterous. And that's, that's how Magnus won in 2016. So now he's playing our boy Nepo and 
people are a little worried about old Magnus, and here's the situation. In, in 2018, he was defending his world championship against Fabiano Caruano. Fabiano was the closest anyone has ever been to being better than Magnus in terms of like hype and rating and whatever. He, according to the nerds and the analysts, and watching chess analysts are hilarious because it's two people who are nowhere near as good as those guys pretending to think about what they're going to do, which and they're never even close. It's honestly hilarious. So Fabiano gets pretty close, and he probably he probably wasn't as aggressive as he could have. And what we've figured out is people are sort of starting to think that because Fabiano's beat him before, he's never in the world championship, that Magnus had kind of gotten in his head. So earlier before the match had happened, there were like leaked YouTube videos of Fabiano studying, and Magnus had to come out and say, I didn't use the YouTube videos. So then they added a month of training for each person. So they'd be like, I, I wasn't watching what you were studying. And now we've gotten to the point where like, this is like a boxing match where they're in the cave right now, Nepo and Magnus, and they're looking at each other's games. They're like going through their YouTube content. Like, what do I think this guy's going to play? The reason, one of the reasons that of the many reasons that Magnus is so effing good at this is he doesn't have a plan. His plan is to be do shit you've never seen. It's for any NFL football fans. It's like the Patriots. His entire goal is to be like, you have no idea what this is. And I know that you don't know what to do here. So what he wants to do is preparing for Drago. Exactly. He wants to waste your time. It's well, I mean, that's my life philosophy, frankly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But yeah, no, uh, interesting to note. There's a there's a Russian guy preparing for it. So like like in this analogy, if Nepo is Drago for obvious yeah. reasons, hmm. uh, it it'd be exactly like Rocky, except for instead of like the average Philadelphian garbage man, it's a handsome Norwegian <laughs> model. Do you know Magnus Carlson is literally a model? A literally a model, yeah. His yeah. also his name is Magnus, which is like a dope name. Like it's cool, the coolest thing in the world. Dope. So the way that it works in chess, and we've talked about this before, is I beat you, you beat me, and and the system ranks us. He's got the highest rating of all time at twenty eight eighty two, and that is theoretically comparable throughout history. It's not quite because of you know styles change and competition. Chess has kind of never been better than it is right now, at least according to the math, and he's still better than all those people. And he just beat him back. He lost the World Cup this year to the guy who's playing the best right now. I uh, call him J-A-K. I don't, his first name is Jan. He's from Poland. It's too hard to pronounce. Once he wins, I'll learn it, but I haven't learned it yet. <laughs> um, he'll be he'll be the challenger next time because he's on fire right now. And, and like if you did ratings like you did in college football where you voted, he would be number one ahead of Magnus. And kind of he spanked him in the World Cup pretty bad. But um, Which it's just ratings a guy are stupid. Mm-hmm. Or unless Magnus lost on purpose to put that shit on tape, which he would totally do. Like, he's uh, oh, yeah, he's playing a long game. But like yeah, the, the he, thing about Magnus is like he just never blunders. Never. He just doesn't. Like you, you, you see, you see crazy blunders at at all levels of chess. Really, uh, Magnus just doesn't do it. I, I read this quote. I think it's from Kasparov. I read it in like a a chess manual that was marketed as like this is what we teach little Russian school children. And I said, I I thought it was really cool. And, but the quotation was, uh, uh, chess is all about being the person who makes the second to last mistake. Like yeah. that's always Magnus. He doesn't, he just doesn't give people opportunities to exploit him because he just doesn't make huge mistakes like that. So he has played in the way that it works. There's 12 classical games. And if they need those quick tie break games, they play those tie break games. So there's 12 classical games, right? Chris, his, yep. His uh, world championship against Vissi didn't make it to 12. He had already won. He had one in 10, right? He had three checkmates and a bunch of draws. Vissi had zero. Karyakin checkmated him once. And Fabiano didn't checkmate him at all. So that means in 36 classical chess games at the world championship level, 
he's been checkmated one time. That's absolutely wild. It is preposterous. He doesn't beat himself ever. No, I mean, he's he's just he's not going to lose the game for you. Which which I think coming all the way back to the very beginning of it, that gives credence to the idea that you should have to beat the world champion. I mean, sure. They 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 set it up in a way that allows for continuity and I think taking advantage of that by making it so that you have to actually beat that player and not let them beat you in return a whole bunch. I, I I think that is a little bit more. I think that's more of an accomplishment than winning a tiebreaker. Sure, I agree. I agree with that. Unless everybody buys into it, and you can kind of theoretically have that argument, and it only works now because Magnus is also the best at that. He's the only player that's ever been the best at all three unanimously. Um, so I guess like now that's where the bar is. Like you got to just learn all of the games. But I kind of see what you're saying there. So sort of like a boxer, it's literally like a belt. I have the belt, and to get the belt, you have to take it from me. Like yeah. it's my yeah. belt. It's got my name on it. I, I completely understand that. We're going to get out of here on this. I wanted to talk about a real chess concept, an actual tactic that happens in real life. It's called Zugzwang, Chris. Zugzwang, Zugzwang. sounds like a made-up word. It totally sounds up like a made-up word. Sounds like an explain? indie band. A Zugzwang is where in chess you want to essentially say, no, thank you. You go now. So explain to the people what that means. What it means is, toward the end of the game more often, Sometimes it's to a player's advantage to not make a move because every single move option they have available to them will result in some kind of loss. Maybe they'll lose material. Maybe they'll have a huge positional disadvantage. Maybe they'll get checkmated. Uh, But the problem for them is that in the rules of chess, you're not allowed to skip your turn. You can't just say, yep, nope, you can have two moves in a row. Uh, That's not allowed. You are required to move one of your pieces. And Zugzwang is something that players try to get their opponents into uh, because it's basically just a set of handcuffs and the, your opponent is responsible for their own demise and the only thing they have to choose is how they're going to die. Right, Chris. So the Detroit Lions right now are in Zugzwang for an entire season. They're in Zugzwang because they're not good. Yeah, they're in Zugzwang. They just want to be like, okay, it's 2022 now. Everything the they do... Turns to ash. Turns to ash. We've got a bunch of links in the show description. The 2021 World Chess Championship begins, I think, on Thanksgiving Day. Ten days from when we're recording this on November 25th. It's going to take all day. It's in Dubai. You can watch it if you want. It takes, like, I want to say it takes about 19 minutes of total action. It's incredibly boring, but it's fun to have on in the background while you're working. I totally recommend it. And we'll we'll do a follow-up. We'll do another chess cast in a couple months and see if our boy Magnus is, is still the reigning champion. So you can check out all the links in the show description. And we're going to come back. Uh, we've got a lot of cool stuff coming on Pipeline. Chris, we're going to start to do this this kind of stuff a lot more. Chess casts, competition casts. We've got to talk about the military. do some military stuff one of these days. Some strategy. It's going to be fun. One thing we're not going to do, we're not going to watch, gonna watch lines. the Lions. Not going to watch Lions. Don't do that. Don't get in to Detroit Lions Ziggs way. Okay, cool. <laughs>